Father, we thank you for your treasure that you hide in jars of clay. We look now at the clay pot of Thomas Brooks, not to be in awe of him, but of his God. And so minister grace to us now through your servant. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So for those of you that are not familiar, each year I choose a different writer, pastor, theologian, uh, someone worthy of some emulation in the faith, and study them, study their writings, their life. This mostly consists in reading something of their works for 30 minutes a day, four days a week. And with that, let me say this, if you are struggling with whatever that big book is that you think there's no way, uh, maybe it's Calvin's Institutes that has ominously sat there on the shelf for years, or uh, Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, or whatever it is, and you think there's no way, I want to, but there's no way, don't underestimate what you can get through by chipping away at just small 15, 30 minutes segments a few times a week. So four days a week, about 30 minutes, I made it through roughly 1,700 pages of Brooks' works. And I should get double credit for that because uh, it's about nine-point font, really densely packed. Uh, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're, uh, it's one of those books um, that whenever they reprint it, it's from uh, the copies of of the works that were printed earlier, and so it, it gets pretty, pretty tied in there. Um, in addition to that, I'll read as many biographies or analysis of, of their works as I can, and this year that meant virtually nothing other than the scant memoir that begins the collected works that's published by the banner. There's nothing about Thomas Brooks, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And all this climax is in a biographical message, which I will admit is just as much for me as it is for you. But I do want it to spill over it onto you, but this helps me to kind of collect my thoughts from the year. Today, after a sketch of Brooks' life, I want to look at three themes in three of Brooks's books that were a blessing to me. Three themes that I think you'll see have bearing on one another. But uh, I'll, I'll take up a, just briefly how, how, they, how they bear on one another, but I think you'll, you'll see it as we go along. Concerning his life, in 13 years of having this habit, studying a theologian each year, I've, as I expressed, had far, far less to draw on than anyone else. Consider the oddity of this. We have six volumes of his collected works. He penned many that are going to enduringly remain classics, at least within Reformed theology. And that being so, how can one write so much and yet so little be written of him? But is this not something that every one of us should seek to emulate? Does it not smell of John the Baptizer's remark, he must increase, but I must decrease. Thomas Brooks himself fades as time advances, and his words, exalting over the word, 
glorifying the Word, continue to endure. And we haven't said anything at this point about the life of Thomas Brooks, and yet we've learned something from him. Brooks was not a major player in the affairs of men. Men did not write about his life and his actions, but he wrote. And what he wrote endures because he wrote of Christ. And this does say something about the significance of the printed word, why it's valuable. But more than that, I think it speaks to this. It speaks to the value of a faithful gospel ministry because that's where his writing overflowed from. He was born in 1608. We don't know to whom. We don't know where. He entered Cambridge in 1625. We do not know under what manner or what time he exited. He may not have graduated. We, we don't have any, any idea. He was ordained as a minister in 1640, was soon serving as a chaplain to the parliamentary fleet. So he, he did serve at sea in those capacities. And this is during those turbulent years of the English Civil War where you have Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentarians on one side, and you have King Charles I and the royalist on the other side. After the war, during the commonwealth and the peace under which the Puritans prospered at that time, we find uh, Brooks ministering at St. Thomas the Apostle in London. He would often preach before Parliament. 1652, he becomes a rector of St. Margaret's. Um, 1658, Cromwell dies. Political turmoil ensues. The royalists soon overtake Parliament. King Charles II is restored to the throne. And very briefly after that, contrary to promises Cromwell made, which were probably in earnest, but it, it's, it's, he's dealing now with a political beast... Anyway, in the, in the wake of this, we have the 1662 Act of Uniformity, which says to all the clergy who are part of the established church, um, you have to subscribe to the doctrine of the Church of England. You have to, if you don't already have it, be ordained within the Anglican Church. And all you Puritans need to stop being Puritans. You need to stop purifying and the result was known as the Great Ejection. Somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 ministers lost their churches. And uh, if those churches that were, didn't want to come in line, and the ministers more so that didn't want to, were then known as nonconformist. To give you an idea of what's happening, he was not a nonconformist, he was not ejected. But you know John Bunyan's imprisonment, it was during this time frame. So that's the kind of persecution that someone who's a nonconformist, who continues to preach without the proper licensing, without being ordained within the Anglican church, that's the kind of persecution they can expect. Brooks was ejected. He continued to preach, but by grace, providence, he never really was persecuted in any substantial way. He was a Congregationalist by conviction, so among those Puritans that weren't Baptist, he was getting closer. Uh, he, he was a Congregationalist, he preached to a small church at, Moore, at Moorfields. Whenever the Great Plague of 1665 was 
ravaging London, Brooks didn't leave his post. What's interesting is I've read this with other Puritans that were in London for the Great Plague. The nonconformist Puritan pastors stayed to minister to their flocks, and the official clergy, in many instances, left. In 1662, he received a license to preach under the Declaration of Indulgence. So that allowed nonconformists, if they would register, they could get a license to preach. In 1676, though, a double blow was received as he both lost that license and his wife died. He would die four years later, September 27, 1680. The first and only work of Brooks that I'd read prior to last year's study was Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It is, I believe, his best-known work, and I wish it were more well-known because of all the confusion concerning spiritual warfare that is so predominant. I'm afraid we look, whenever evangelicals, Charismatic influence has made a lot more inroads than we care to admit. We just think we've cleaned it up where it's not so embarrassing. But nonetheless, whenever uh, evangelicals start talking spiritual warfare, I think they look like a bunch of kids playing with Nerf guns and the real armor of God is over there sitting in the corner. Brooks gleans his title from 2 Corinthians 2.11, which in the King James reads, Lest Satan should get an advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. But that's exactly what I think many saints are. They're ignorant of his devices. We're in a worse situation because not only do we not know the art of war, we think we do. We rush out with bravado, challenge the enemy. As for those who may have no interest in demons, well, I'm not guilty of that. Remember C.S. Lewis's line, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And hell, a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Both the zealous mercenary warrior against the demons and the disinterested pacifist demonstrate ignorance concerning the enemy and his devices. Brooks is a wise, seasoned veteran, properly armed. In the dedicatory of his book, he advises, Beloved in our dearest Lord, Christ, the Scriptures, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast of these, if, of, of any, if any um, study case of the study of these, they cannot be safe here. If any, there, there's the typo. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here nor happy hereafter. So, what are these devices? We have time for only a sampling. Um, He puts forward multiple devices and then multiple remedies for each one of them. 
One of the devices is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. So one remedy he proposes is to consider that sin is but a bitter sweet. That seeming sweet that is in sin will quickly vanish and lasting shame, sorrow, and terror will come in the room thereof. Many eat that on earth that they digest in hell. So whenever that sin is before you, it's that sin that you know you've tasted of and you remember how awful the aftertaste was of that sin. Think of the sin before you bite again in terms of the aftertaste. You know it left last time. Another device, he says, Satan uses to draw the soul into sin is by painting sin with virtue's colors. Brooks says, Satan knows that if he should present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would rather fly from it than yield to it. And so for this reason, Satan from the very garden is presented to us as that teller of half-truths. He, hold, he, he's, he's a, uh, he always perverts the good, but what he holds forth is the good, and he masks the perversion. His tactics have not changed. We still put pretty names on ugly things and do not doubt that this is the work of the prince of the power of the air. For instance, can you conceive of anyone in the media using sodomy in place of gay? We put pretty names on ugly things. And so those who stand for righteousness now are intolerant. They are oppressors. Those who parade their wickedness are loving and open-minded. This is the work of the prince of the power of the air. As a remedy, Brooks tells us, a poisonous pill is never a whit the less poisonous because it is gilded over with gold. A wolf is never a whit less a wolf because he hath put on a sheepskin, nor the devil is never a whit less a devil because he appears sometimes like an angel of light. So neither is sin any whit the less filthy and abominable by its being painted over with virtue's colors. Another remedy for this that Brooks puts forward is to consider that even those sins that Satan paints and puts new names and colors upon cost the best blood, the noblest blood, the life blood, the heart blood of the Lord Jesus. Can anything truly be lovely, beautiful, and good that requires the blood of the spotless Lamb of God to cleanse us from? A third device is to present God to the soul as one made up of all mercy. Who has not reasoned thus? This sin won't be that big of a deal because my God is so merciful and forgiving. This is to reason like the devil, to be very bad, Brooks says, because God is very good. Brooks says that this is the sorest judgment in the world, to be left to sin upon any pretense whatsoever. 
He writes, a soul given up to sin is a soul ripe for hell, a soul posting to destruction. And then he immediately breaks into this prayer. This isn't, I don't want you to think like this is a common thing for Brooks to do, to just break into prayer in the midst of his writing. This thought struck Brooks so. It was very striking as you're reading. This thought of being given over to sin upon the presumption. You see what Satan does? He presents God's goodness as a reason to be bad. He takes something that's beautiful in God and tries to make it an excuse for sin. And Brooks, as he's considering this, and he's, he's awake to it, and he, he does not want to fall victim to it, Brooks just burst into this prayer, Oh Lord, this mercy... I humbly beg that whatever thou givest me up to, thou wilt not give me up to the ways of my own heart. He then presents uh, devices that Satan uses to, to keep us from holy duties. Uh, eight of those. I'd, 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 I've got a lot I want to cover. I'm going to uh, advance ahead. The... Uh, Thereafter, he presents eight devices that Satan uses to keep the soul in a sad, doubting state. Here are a couple. First, by causing them to be still pouring and musing upon sin, to mind their sin more than their Savior. So to mind their sin as to forget, yea, as to neglect that Savior. And a lot of remedies that Brooks' uh, list here, of course, concerned just preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of the gospel. He says, we are to look upon all your sins as charged upon the account of Christ, as debts which the Lord Jesus has fully satisfied. In law, we know that all the debts of a wife are charged upon the husband. Saith the wife to one and another, if I owe you anything, go to my husband." So may a believer say to the law and to the justice of God, If I owe you anything, go to my Christ, who hath undertaken for me. But a remedy that I thought was unlooked for with this device is this. He, he, asks, he says, in this, as a remedy against this device, consider the reasons why the Lord is pleased to have His people exercised, troubled, and vexed with certain operations of sinful corruptions. And they are these. So here you are, you're in the sad, doubting state. And the sad, doubting state is very likely due to seeing sin within. And upon seeing that sin within, he says, consider why God might allow, why God does allow sin to persist. And they're these. Partly to keep them humble and low in their own eyes. Partly to put them upon the use of all divine helps whereby sin may be subdued and mortified. And partly that they may live upon Christ for the perfecting work of sanctification. And partly to wean them from things below and to make them heartsick of their absence from Christ. And to maintain in them bowels of compassion towards others that are subject to the same infirmities with them. That they may distinguish between a state of grace and a state of glory. And that heaven may be more sweet to them in the close. So in that moment of bitterness of soul, consider the goodness of your God in allowing even the sin in your life. 
Second, Satan keeps the saints in a sad, despondent state by working them to make false definitions of their graces. I can't, <laughs> I can't uh, begin to tell you the number of times that someone has come for counseling concerning assurance of salvation, doubting how it is with their soul, and what you find out is they have a much greater definition of what it means to be a Christian and a saint than what God's Word explains. They, they're expecting some kind of level of perfection and sanctification that's foreign to the Bible. And such is the black hole Satan though would have us be sucked into to doubt because we doubt. Now this is only a sampling and many would think it less showy than the spiritual warfare that's mocked about today. But if we practice this kind of art of war, maybe less showy, but I'm certain we would be more holy. If you want to start reading the Puritans, I think Precious Remedies is as good a place to start as any. And for no other reason than perhaps for the word to the reader that he gives at the beginning. He says, remember, it is not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that makes them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not he that reads most, but he that meditates most that will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. After Precious Remedies, perhaps the most popular of Brooks' works is the mute Christian under the smarting rod. He opens with this dedicatory. To all afflicted, distressed, dissatisfied, disquieted, and discomposed Christians throughout the world. You liked that one, didn't you? Uh, he, he says, Dear hearts, the choicest saints are born to troubles as the sparks fly upwards. Many are the troubles of the righteous. If they were many and not troubles, then as the, in the proverb, the more the merrier. Or if they were troubles and not many, then the fewer the better cheer. But God, who is infinite in wisdom and matchless in goodness, hath ordered troubles, yea, many troubles, to come trooping in upon us on every side as our mercies, so our crosses seldom come single. They usually come treading one upon the hills of the other. They are like April showers. No sooner is one over, but another comes. And yet, Christians, it is mercy, rich mercy, that every affliction is not an execution, that every correction is not a damnation. The higher the waters rise, the nearer, nearer Noah's ark was lifted up to heaven. The more thy afflictions are increased, the more thy heart shall be raised heavenward. Now, such a dose of honesty is bolstering enough. But then you consider the text that Brooks takes us to. Psalm 39. Read the psalm in whole this afternoon, but this is the focal point. I'll read from the New American Standard this time. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. 
in the light of the affliction, learning that lesson that Job did when he saw God's glory and closing his mouth. Brooks lists, uh, well, uh, in conventional Puritan fashion, he opens by stating the doctrine that he intends to unfold. And it is this, doctrine, that it is the great duty and concernment of gracious souls to be mute and silent under the greatest affliction, the saddest providences, and sharpest trials they meet with in this world. He then lists seven kinds of silence, and it's only one of these that we should aim for. There's stoical silence, that self-resolve of strength of will, stoical silence. A political silence, it's just not wise and prudent to speak for my political uh, or my appearance. Uh, There's a foolish silence, a sullen silence, a forced silence and a sparing silence. But what we are after is a holy silence. It consists, he writes, of eight things. First, it includes a sight of God and an acknowledgement of God as the author of all afflictions that come upon us. In short, think of Job. Yahweh is given, Yahweh is taken away. Second, he says, it includes and takes in some holy, gracious apprehensions of the majesty, sovereignty, dignity, authority, and presence of God under those who, under whose afflicting hand we are. And the difference between that and the first one is very subtle. But it's substantial. He says it includes a holy, gracious apprehension of God's majesty, sovereignty, His transcendence, His lordship in this. In the first one, he's saying you simply acknowledge God as sovereign over all the afflictions. But in the other... There must be a gracious apprehending of these things. In other words, you see this. Brooks is saying, if we're to, sil- if we're to suffer with holy silence, it must be a work of God. A gracious apprehension of who He is. Third, Brooks tells us that a gracious and prudent silence takes in a holy quietness and calmness of mind and spirit under the afflicting hand of God. There's there's a silencing, a subduing, a taming by God's sanctifying work in us of the inner turmoil that comes in the wake of suffering. Fourth, the silence takes in a humble, justifying, clearing, and acquitting of God of all blame, rigor, and injustice in all the afflictions He brings upon us. It confesses, even in the bitterest of trials, as David did, that God is blameless in His judgment. And fifth, he says, a holy silence takes in gracious, blessed, soul-quieting conclusions about the issue and event of those afflicted that are upon us. Holy silence... uh, Reasons from, it it takes in soul-quieting conclusions. He's saying that holy silence reasons from Scripture and it draws the proper conclusions concerning our suffering. How often is our suffering compounded 
because we start reasoning in and of ourselves concerning this suffering and what it's meaning. We're not, we're not drawing anything from Scripture. We're just making stuff up. Draw conclusions such as these whenever we, we reason from Scripture, Brooks says. This will work for my good. This will keep me humble. He will not cast me off forever. My God is merciful. He does not delight in the affliction itself. Six, Brooks writes, Holy silence takes in a strict charge, a solemn command that conscience lays upon the soul to be quiet and still. He's saying that you've got a conscience, if you're a saint, that's being informed and shaped by the Word of God. And whenever your conscience bears witness to this inner turmoil and that it's wrong, a holy silence obeys that conscience the same way that Christ, when He spoke, peace be still, brought stillness to the waters. The seventh, the silence includes a surrendering, a resigning up of ourselves to God whilst we are under His afflicting hand. And this is one of my favorite illustrations. And these think, kind of things are replete in Brooks. He, he just litters his writings with things like this. There once was a good woman who when she was sick, being asked whether she were willing to live or die, answered, which God pleaseth. But said one that stood by, if God should refer it to you, which should you choose? And truly, she said, if God should refer it to me, I would even refer it to him again. That soul, he says, was worth gold. Or consider the prayer of our Lord. Not as I will, but as you will. Eighth, this silence takes in patient waiting upon the Lord under afflictions until deliverance comes. And then, relievingly, Brooks tells us not only what this holy silence consists of, but what it does not exclude. It doesn't exclude a sense and feeling of our affliction. It doesn't exclude, he says, prayer for deliverance out of our afflictions. It, it doesn't exclude men's being kindly affected and afflicted with their sins as the meritorious cause of all their sorrows and sufferings. So often, it's true, we won't have a clue if sin is behind or a reason for our sufferings. But there are instances where the sin does, where the suffering does answer to the sin. There are instances whenever it's clear. And a holy silence does not exclude, he said, uh, being affected and afflicted with that recognition of, of that truth. Micah 7.9 I will bear the indignation of Yahweh because I sinned against Him. Fourth, a holy silence does not exclude teaching and instructing others while we are afflicted. It doesn't exclude mourning or weeping under the afflicting hand of God. It doesn't exclude sighing, groaning, or roaring under the afflictions. And he explains, it is not sighing, but murmuring. It is not groaning, but roaring. It is not muttering. Uh, it, is not, uh, it is not groaning, but grumbling. 
It is not roaring but muttering that is opposite to a holy silence. He says a holy silence does not exclude or shut out the use of any lawful means whereby persons may be delivered out of their afflictions. It does not exclude a just and sober uh, complaint against the authors, contrivers, abettors, or instruments of our afflictions. In other words, complain to your God, but don't complain of your God. You can, you can come to God in prayer concerning the afflictions brought upon you by wicked men, and yet rest knowing that they are ordered by a righteous and holy God. Now, as I'm reading... The mute Christian under the smarting rod, that really was only the foundational kind of level. It's what Brooks begins to lay on top of that that really ministered deeply to me. The, the helps that he then provides for us to um, grow in this holy silence. So here's a few. He that hath deserved a hanging hath no reason to charge the judge with cruelty if he escape with a whipping. And we that have deserved a damning have no reason to charge God for being too severe if we escape with a fatherly lashing. It says it's a very evil thing when we shall go to accuse God that we may excuse ourselves and unblame ourselves that we may blame our God. And lay the fault anywhere rather than upon our own hearts and ways. When thou art under affliction, thou mayest humbly tell God that thou fillest his hand heavy. But thou must not blame him because his hand is heavy. He writes, as there is a curse wrapped up in the best things he gives the wicked, so there is a blessing wrapped up in the worst things he gives his own. As there is a curse wrapped up in a wicked man's health, so there is a blessing wrapped up in a godly man's sickness. As there is a curse wrapped up in a wicked man's strength, so there is a blessing wrapped up in a godly man's weakness. As there is curse wrapped up in a wicked man's wealth, so there is a blessing wrapped up in a godly man's wants. As there is a curse wrapped up in a wicked man's honor, so there is a blessing wrapped up in a godly man's reproach. As there is curse wrapped up in all a wicked man's mercy, so there is a blessing wrapped up in all a godly man's lo crosses, losses, and changes. And why then should he not sit mute and silent before the Lord? And finally, there's this sweet short sentence. It is no argument that Christ is not in the ship because tempests and storms arise. And that final sentence brings you to the final theme, that of assurance. Because troubles without often lead to troubles within. And Brooks is helpful for both. I always enjoy the surprise or two that I encounter along the journey with these studies. And I wasn't surprised to read something of assurance while reading a Puritan. They are the doctors of the soul. They deal with the soul. They, they don't just provide theology for the head to swell. They always bring it to the heart and to the hand. So I wasn't surprised at all to read anything of assurance in Brooks. That was expected. I would be surprised if I didn't. What was surprising was just how much I read. 
on assurance. So in the collected works published by Banner of Truth, Precious Remedies is 166 pages. The Mute Christian, 130. In comparison, consider the two works of Brooks that I read that focus explicitly on assurance. Heaven on Earth, 234 pages. A Cabinet of Jewels, 266. I read Brooks on assurance nearly as much as I read him on anything. And I think heaven on earth is the better of the two, so I'll limit my remarks largely to it. As was par for the Puritans, when you read the title, you've pretty much read the work. You know everything it's about. So the, the shortened title that we have on our, you know, you buy a copy today, it's going to have heaven on earth. The full title on the Puritan title page, on the, you know, the, the, uh, the printed title page, Heaven on earth, or a serious discourse touching a well-grounded assurance of men's everlasting happiness and blessedness, discovering the nature of assurance, the possibility of attaining it, the causes, springs, and degrees of it, with the resolution of several weighty questions. Now, just from the length, and the depth, and the breadth, and the height of Brooks' title, and knowing how much he wrote about it, can you see this? We think far less of assurance today than Brooks did. There are, of course, those whose conscience is troubled, but most presume upon their salvation. They're not assured of it, they presume on it. Brooks writes in another work, Despair hath slain her thousand, but presumption her ten thousand. The majority of, I think, nearly every pastor's counseling concerns assurance. Doubt, someone doubting the condition of their souls. But the majority never seek such counseling. Because they simply presume it is well with their souls. Best to be assured, but better to be a worrier than a presumer. What is true assurance? Brooks writes, assurance is a reflex act of a gracious soul whereby he clearly and evidently sees himself in a gracious, blessed, and happy state. It is a sensible feeling, and experimental discerning of, a, you see heart and, and, uh, and mind in both those phrases, a, a sensible feeling, and, and by which he means this kind of sensible feeling, and experimental, or the other way the Puritans would say, an experiential, it's something that's lived out. It's, it's experimental discerning of a man's being in a state of grace and of his having a right to a crown of glory. And this arises from his seeing in himself the special, peculiar, and distinguishing graces of Christ in light of the Spirit of Christ or from the testimony and report of the Spirit of God. Brooks then goes on to quote Romans 8, 16 and 17. He quotes from him in part. I'll read them in full. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are sons, we are children of God. And if children should say sons. And I'd say this because we've talked about this. There's a significance to saying you're an heir as a son. There's a theological significance. He's telling us you get an inheritance. Uh, we're, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Brooks goes then on to say, It is one thing for me to have grace. It is another for me to see my grace. It is one thing for me to believe, and another thing for me to believe that I do believe. It is one thing for me to have faith, and another thing for me to know that I have faith. Now assurance flows from a clear, certain, evident knowledge that I have grace and that I do believe. Now this assurance is the beauty and top of a Christian's glory in this life. It is usually attended with the strongest joy, with the sweetest comforts, and with the greatest peace. It is a pearl that most want, a crown that few wear. His state is safe and happy, whose soul is adorned with grace, though he sees it not, though he knows it not. Assurance is not of the essence of a Christian. It is required to the bin essay, the well-being, to the comfortable and joyful being of a Christian, but it is not required to the essay, to the being of a Christian. A man may be a true believer and yet would give all the world were it in his power to know that he is a believer. To have grace and to be sure that we have grace is glory upon the throne. It is heaven on this side of heaven. That was just the preface. And can you not just with that sense how much more glorious a thing assurance is than presumption? Assurance, he says, is this reflex act of a gracious soul. So there's a gracious working of God whereby the testimony of the Spirit, the Spirit's bearing witness with our spirit such that the soul reflexively acts towards this, the knowledge that they are a son of God. Where there's assurance, the Spirit testifies the truth of God's Word to the soul. Where there's presumptions, where, the, where there's presumption, emotions are artificially stirred and manipulated so that our eyes are directed to man's work rather than Christ's work. For instance, you said a sinner's prayer, you walked an aisle, you were baptized. So we're beholding what we've done rather than the completed work of Christ. Rather than tease out all of Brooks's argument, I want to leave you with just a few insights. First, Brooks establishes that the ground of our assurance is not special revelation, but it's something common to all believers. Again, because of the influence of the charismatic movement, when many are looking for assurance, they're, they're trying to find some kind of emotional state. They, they want a feeling And then they want to base how they are with God because of how they feel. Where should they look? Brooks answers. It is the very scope and end of Scripture to help believers to a well-grounded assurance of their everlasting happiness and blessedness. It is the very drift and design of the whole Scripture to bring souls first 
to an acquaintance with Christ. Then, to an acceptance of Christ. And then, to build them up in a sweet assurance of their actual interest in Christ. The Spirit speaks by the Word. How does He bear testimony? With the Word. Even whenever we're looking for evidences of grace, for instance, 1 John says, we know Him. How, do, how, how are ways that we know that we know Him? And, and some of the things 1 John presents to us is we love the brothers. But the way the Spirit testifies is as we're holding open the Word that pierces and divides... And it speaks that word, that word of truth, that there should be this love for the brothers. It exposes our hearts. We don't don't examine them in and of our own strength. We do it by the Spirit and the Word. Understanding this, Brooks says that there are these springs of assurance. From assurance springs from these things. These are some of the evidences that we're looking for. Basically the fruit of the Spirit in many ways here. But he says these springs aren't, aren't something that, that are just the special saints have. This is something that's common to any real saint. Springs like faith, hope, love, a good conscience. And the point is that you don't need to go finding some alien kind of source. If you're truly a saint, the springs from, from which you'll see the Spirit testifying you are a son of God with the Word of God, They're right there. And yet it is a grace that God may deny His dearest saints. Choicest ones, Brooks writes, for a time. He says this may be to exercise their grace, to keep them earnest in religious duties, to conform them to Christ, thus to uh, being as they're conformed to Christ, for Christ's glory, for greater blessing, the could be to keep Satan's des- uh, to foil Satan's designs, keep us from sin. Brooks writes uh, in this though. What about that person who who they earnestly desire it? They've pled for it, and they they, uh, they say we've been at the door of mercy early and late for assurance, and yet we've not obtained it. We have prayed and waited, we have waited and prayed, we have prayed and mourned, we have mourned and prayed, and yet we cannot get a good word from God, a smile from God. He hath covered Himself with a cloud, and after all that we have done, it is still night with our souls. God seems not to be at home. He seems not to value our prayers. We call and cry and shout out for assurance, and yet He shutteth out our prayer. We are sure that we have not found praying times to be times of assurance to our souls. In light of this objection, Brooks answers, and I quote at length, It may be you've been more earnest and vehement for assurance and the effects of it, comfort, joy, peace, than you have been for grace and holiness, for communion with God and conformity to God. It may be your request for assurance have been full of life and spirits when your request for grace and holiness for communion with God and conformity to God have been lifeless and spiritless. If so, no wonder that assurance is denied you. Assurance makes most for your comfort. 
But holiness makes most for God's honor. Man's holiness is now his greatest happiness. And in heaven, man's greatest happiness will be his perfect holiness. Assurance is the daughter of holiness. And he who shall more highly prize and more earnestly press after the enjoyment of the daughter than the mother, it is not a wonder if God shuts the door upon him and crosses him in the thing he most desires. The surest and shortest way to assurance is to wrestle and contend with God for holiness. When the stream and cream of a man's spirit runs after holiness, it will not be long with that man. The sun of righteousness will shine forth upon that man and turn his winter into summer and crown him with the diadem of assurance. So yes, pursue assurance. Earnestly desire to know it's well with your soul. But may that pursuit be subservient to your quest for holiness. And may your longing for holiness be wrapped up in the greater longing and desire to know Christ. Brooks advises, if you would strengthen and maintain your assurance, then look that your hearts run more out to Christ than to assurance. To the sun than to the beams, to the fountain than to the stream, to the root than to the branch, to the cause than to the effect. Assurance is sweet, but Christ is more sweet. Assurance is lovely, but Christ is altogether lovely. Assurance is precious, but Christ is most precious. Though assurance be a flower that yields much comfort and delight, yet it is but a flower. Though assurance be a precious box, yet it is but a box. Though assurance be a ring of gold, yet it is but a ring of gold. And what is the flower to the root? What is the box to the ointment? What is the ring to the pearl? No more is assurance to Christ. Therefore let thy eye and heart, first and most and last, be fixed upon Christ. Then will assurance bed and board with thee. Otherwise thou wilt quickly find thy summer to be turned into winter. Satan often uses suffering to turn our eyes from looking upon our Savior to looking at our sin. This recalls Brooks' admonition that comes at the beginning of Precious Remedies. You remember? Beloved in our dearest Lord, Christ, the Scriptures, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied in search. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here, nor happy hereafter. Saints, you will suffer. And Satan is your foe. Study the Scriptures that you may know your foe, your own heart, and chiefly, your Savior. And if you need a friend along the journey, I'd put forward to you Thomas Brooks. And if you take up nothing else of Brooks's, grab Spurgeon's smooth stones from ancient Brooks. 
What do you get whenever a great mind gleans jewels from a great mind? Well, this is what you get. It's a collection of gems, jewels, precious stones from Brooks. And so I'll leave you with Spurgeon's preface as a commendation to study Brooks and to study Brooks so that you might study Christ, the Scriptures, your own hearts and Satan's devices. As a writer, Brooks scatters stars with both his hands. He hath dust of gold in his storehouse or all manner of precious stones. Genuine, uh, gen- genius is always marvelous, but when sanctified it is matchless. The ringing of the bells of the sanctuary is sweeter than the music of the house of feasting. Had Brooks been a worldly man, his writings would have been most valuable. But since he was an eminent Christian, they are doubly so. He hath the eagle eye of faith as well as the eagle wing of imagination. He saw similes, metaphors, and allegories everywhere, but they were all consecrated to his master's service. His heart indicted the the good matter, for, uh, uh, for he spake of the things which he had made touching the king. Reader, thou hast here presented to thee, in a cheap and readable form, the choice sayings of one of the king's mighties. The great divine who wrote these precious sentences was of the race of the giants. He was, a head, and sh- he was head and shoulders above all the people, not in his stature like Saul, but in mind and soul and grace. Treasure these gems and adorn, thyse- adorn thyself with them by putting them into the golden setting of holy practice, which is the end the writer always aimed at. Use these smooth stones as David of old, and may the Lord direct them to the very forehead of thy sins, for this is the author's main design. One of these pithy extracts may assist our meditations for a whole day and may open up some sweet passage of Scripture to our understandings, And perhaps some brief sentence may stick in the sinner's conscience like an arrow from the bow of God. So prays the servant of Christ and His church, C.H. Spurgeon. Let's pray. Father, thank You again that You raise up shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And that the debt of the church (laughs) is is all owing to Christ. It's, it's in Christ that these gifts come to your church. And, and it's unfathomable that the wealth that we possess of standing on the shoulders of the heritage of the saints that we are able to learn from today. One of being Thomas Brooks. So thank you for your servant and how he magnified Christ both in all of his lacks and faults and failings whose grace forgave but also in all the ways that you conformed him to your son for the glory of your bride in the name of Christ we pray now amen